This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. morning, church. You guys all look bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Yeah, no? Okay. Sorry. Maybe not. Something I just want to emphasize that Pastor Sean said is um, the importance of these home groups. Um, We can tend to get into a routine that's comfortable where, you know, we go to work, we go home, or, you know, whatever our life looks like, and then we go to church on Sunday, and we go to church every Sunday, and maybe even go to church every Wednesday, you're going to start going to home groups. By the way, he, he said that if you're interested, you could sign up at the information station. Let me just tell you, you're all interested, if you know what I'm saying. Think one person. You're all going to home groups. It's not a joke. Just kidding. You don't have to. But I want you to because fellowship happens on a different level in a small group. You get to know people, and the, the, the discipleship is real, and, and you grow in your faith. You're able to function in the gifts that God's given you. It's rich, and it's unbelievable. You're going to be blessed if you commit to attending a home group. We want you guys to understand that. And the flip side of that, sometimes it's good for things to be shaken up a little bit in our lives. Can I get a witness? Now, this stuff is terrible. The last six months have been very difficult, but, but you have to see the good in it, too. It challenges us to make us look at things from a different perspective, to readdress things, to recalibrate, so to speak, so that we're doing things with the right intentions. And we're going to look at this morning. This, this morning is it's a very sobering message, and it's the kind of message that... that is even difficult for me because I want to act like bad things don't happen. I want to act like everything's fine. And once you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you never have any problems again. But we're going to look at a guy particularly, we're going to look at somebody who was committed to the cause. He went to church every Sunday. He went to church every Wednesday. Not only that, he served in ministry and he, he was involved and he was one of the closest disciples to Jesus. But then we find him in this situation of my kingdom or the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And in everything that he did, everything that he was a part of, everything that he experienced, everything that he saw didn't have an effect on him to demonstrate what he truly believed. In fact, what he did demonstrated what he truly believed. And make no mistake for you and for I, the way that we live our lives, we go through our lives, it's not like you doing things, it's things coming from what you say you really believe. And I know that we're going to dig into that a little bit more this morning, so we'll bring a little bit more understanding, but the title of today's message is Death sentence. Jesus, in the next chapter, the second half of this chapter and the next chapter is going to be 
going to the cross and he cries out to God, his father, and says, God, if there's any other way that this cup can pass from me, let it be. And, you know, my heart resonates with that. I think, yeah, if there's any other way that Jesus doesn't have to be murdered, tortured and murdered. God, if there's any other way, but there wasn't any other way. And you can't experience the resurrection from the dead until you experience death in your life. This is a biblical principle. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and is buried and dies, it cannot produce fruit. So this is what his destiny was. This is what he was going to do. And then we see this picture that's painted for us. I've got a quote for you this morning from Bruce L. Shelley. It says this, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. We're the only ones. You know why? Because if you're a God, you're powerful. If you're a God, you're in charge. If you're a God, you're in control. If you're a God, you tell other people what to do. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that of humility, submission, obedience. And we can't really understand what that looks like until our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, exemplifies it through his life. God doesn't call you to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. So Jesus goes to the cross, is crucified, buried, and then raises again to life. This is what makes us unique. Jesus said, I did not come to the earth to be served, but to serve, to serve others and give my life a ransom for many. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into our text this morning. Father, we thank you for your great mercy and grace and compassion on us that you pursued us and that you made a way to redeem us, to buy us. And as, as difficult as that was for Jesus, he did it in full submission to you, his Father. Revealing your glory to us so that we could experience it. And then looking at it, that we could be changed, that we could be different that we can know you and, and be the salt and the light in this world that you've called us to be. Father, we pray that you'd speak to us through your word today. You'd teach us. Sow your word in our heart that it would be on good soil and produce fruit for your glory. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 26, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, as it's getting closer to the crucifixion, Jesus reminds them more frequently that this is going to happen because none of them understand what's really going to happen. They all have different expectations of who Jesus is. And then they start to respond differently. We'll see in the second part of this study, which is going to happen next week. We're going to see that they each respond accordingly based on who they really believed Jesus was. 
And at the end of the day, who you believe Jesus really is, is how your life is going to look. And it's not a works-based thing. It's not like, if you believe Jesus is really God, then you better be doing X, Y, and Z for Pastor Tim because he needs a double-double. And if you buy him a double-double, you'll go to heaven. There's people that do that kind of thing. Listen, it's not about the things that you do. It's what you say you believe that it can be lived out and exemplified in your life. Well, look at you. Look, you're different. Jesus says, guys, in two days is the Passover, and, and they're going to deliver me up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. These people hated Jesus so much, they saw what he was doing. They experienced his goodness. They couldn't find any fault in him, so they came to the reasonable conclusion, right, that we get to figure out some way to trick him so that we can kill him. This is going to happen. They're plotting and planning, and Jesus knows. And then we're introduced to two characters in this morning's study. The first one is here in verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste for this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor? Here's this woman who what she believes is who Jesus says he is. She believes that. According to that, she takes something of great value and she pours it on his head and anoints him with oil. Do you know who gets anointed in the Bible? Who gets anointed with oil, typically? Priests and kings. You guys are Bible scholars on fire. Priests and kings. And she anoints Jesus' head with this costly oil. And the disciples are like, what are you doing? And what's the, what, what's the response? What are you doing? We could have sold that and given the money to the poor people. But Jesus answered, or Jesus was aware of it, and he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, I, I want to focus on the faith. This is Mary, by the way, but Matthew doesn't say that it's Mary because he doesn't want us to lose focus on what's being communicated here. But we know that it's Mary, and we know that that Mary would sit at the feet of Jesus. She was engaged with Jesus. And now her life is exemplifying. Things are coming from her life based on who she believes Jesus to be, right? And then Jesus says, the poor you'll have with you always. Don't worry because you're always going to have poor people and you can take care of them. But, but for me, this is the anointing for my burial. And he's reinforcing, I'm not going to be around for much longer. 
You, you, you all need to understand this. And this is the profound thing. Maybe we can read through it quickly and we can go, oh, yeah, and we're reading it right now. And we read, but I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. You know how power, let that sink in a little bit. Yeah, you're reading a verse that was written thousands of years ago that the whole world can read and testify to the act of Mary. And I believe as you live your life, those things that come from your life as a testimony to your faith in Jesus Christ are going to continue to be a testimony into eternity. It's not the doing the things that I know that I have to do. It's submission to God through Jesus, His Son, Jesus Christ, will produce this fruit and even this, this sacrifice because we actually believe who Jesus said He was. Now, we look at a different person as a second person. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, Judas Iscariot is one of the most mind-boggling characters in the Bible. And I've referenced Judas before. We're going to focus on Judas this morning, and I'm going to have five points for you that we're going to cover, that we're, we're going to look at, that, that at face value, when you just think of Judas, it's like, oh, that's too bad. Judas, you know, I messed up. I know people who even defend Judas, and they're like, you know, Judas, we don't really know what happened to him, but no, we, actually, we kind of do know what happened to him. We do know. And we do know that what he did was very bad and it was wrong and he should not have done it. We don't want to get there quite yet. But listen, look at what he says again. He said, what are you willing to do what? To what? To what? To what? To give me. See, the relationship that Judas had with Jesus was what he could get out of it. And for Christianity, for a lot of people, it has to do with what they can. If I can't get something out of it, then, then what, am I, what, what am I there for? I know people that church shop and decide whether they're going to go to a certain church based on what the church has to offer them. And it's really refreshing when a good brother and elder in our church says to me, the first time I came to Paradise Calvary Chapel, I knew that this was a church that, 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 that we were supposed to be at because we have so much to offer. Can you believe how that made me feel? He says, yeah, we can go to all these other churches. They've got all the bells and whistles and everything's fine. But we came into paradise and there's a bunch of little punk kids. We felt like grandpas and grandmas. He's like in his 40s. You guys in your 20s and 30s planning a church. How cute. We've got a lot to offer. We can, we can really get behind what the Lord's doing here. And he's here to this day. And his family serves every Sunday. Because it's not what we have to get but for Mary, it's what we have to give. Do you know the type of environment a culture of a church is when the people that are attending a church are going to give rather than going to take? We can see it here. I'll brag on you guys a little bit. I love our church. Do you know why? From day one, Whenever, when we started in our house, there were some Sundays when people would start getting to our house for our 10 o'clock service at 9 o'clock, 
And there were Sundays that people didn't leave until 10 p.m. And I had a rule uh, with the ministry team. One of the guys came up to me one time. He's like, Tim, you've got to tell people like, hey, it's time to go home. I said, I will never, I will never tell anybody that they have to leave my house and go home. So as long as they're here, you, you can be here, or if you want to go home, you can go home, but we are never, and, and when I have guest speakers come, or I have people come through the visiting, they're like, dude, people at your church stay forever. They like stand around and talk. I'm like, yeah, because they're there to give. They're not there to take. When you experience a, a culture of a church that's, that's just take, it's everybody's, boom, out the door. I got what I need, maybe. That guy's kind of weird, but I got, I got a couple nuggets chew out the meat and spit out the bones, you know. Let me go see if there's something else that I, you know, that, that, might, that might give more to me. Now, I am not making a direct parallel to those people from Judas Iscariot. Don't misunderstand me, okay? But there can be a lot, there can, a lot can be said to what our intentions are in how we do things, how we live our lives. And we are to be others oriented, others-centered people. It is not just about us. It is not this building. I, I really like what Sean said. It's not the holy man or the holy place. And, and when we go through the motions week by week and, and we get plugged in and we are going to church and then maybe we're serving a little bit, we can. this is just what we do. You can miss the point. The point being, you were created for relationship with Him and relationship for each other. You were created to come here to be a part of the body that gives. You know what part of my body just demands what it wants? Probably I would say my stomach. My, my God, their gods are their bellies. What do I want? What do I want to consume? What, what makes me feel good? But in reality, my body works together to care for itself. We're all members caring for each other. Back to Judas. Judas was a part of something that he experienced like, I can't, I just can't wrap my brain around thinking about what Judas experienced being part of the inner circle of Jesus. Healings, resurrection. We're going to do the list of five here in a moment. But he goes and he says, um, what, what are you going to give me? And they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Some commentators agree that 30 pieces of silver was about the equivalent that you would pay for a, a lowly, worthless slave. Like, I need a slave, but, but I'm not going to give, you know, top price. I'll give you 30 pieces of silver for him. And Judas says, well, I guess 30 pieces of silver is better than nothing. Because... He's a taker. Now, on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve, now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Now, I ask this question, why did Jesus have to bring up the betrayal? He, 
Because if he knew it was going to happen, he could just let it roll out, right? And it was going to happen anyway. We know that it has to happen. So why make the Last Supper kind of awkward now? You know, it's, oh, is it me, Jesus? Like, who's it? Somebody's going to be, we have a mole in the house right now? But this is important to highlight. And I've said, I've mentioned this a couple of times because of chapters 24 and 25 that we covered the last couple of weeks. This is important. God always gives an opportunity for repentance before we make the final decision that's going to get us in big trouble. He always, from the, from the beginning, Genesis all the way to Revelation, there's always the provisional last chance opportunity that, that Judas could have stood up, and I know he didn't, I get it, but, but he could have stood up and said, you know what, it, it's me, and I'm sorry, Jesus, I took this silver, but I don't want it, and, and I'm, I'm repenting and turning in the opposite direction. He always gives us the opportunity because God is merciful. And, and again, he does not delight in the death of the ungodly. This, this, this horrible picture that people have painted of God where he's stoking the fires of hell with non-believers. He doesn't like it. It doesn't appeal to him. He does not take delight in it. So there's this last opportunity for Judas to step up and say, I'm sorry, but he doesn't because it's not who he is. In fact, as we look through all of chapter 26 and into chapter 27, and we see a few things that Jesus says, or Judas says, we see a few things that Judas himself says, there's one glaring thing that he never says. Does anybody know what it is? There's one thing that Judas never says. He never repents. Never. Sure, he feels bad. Sure, he takes the money and he throws it in the temple. But he never actually goes to Jesus. Could you imagine walking with Jesus for three years and seeing all the things that, you, that, that he saw and, and, and not just going to Jesus and saying, I was wrong. I did a bad thing. He answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now listen, guys, I don't enjoy saying these kinds of things to you because it's difficult for me. I definitely want to err on grace and goodness and compassion and mercy and all the good things of God. I, I definitely want to stay there, okay? But what Jesus says about Judas, Jesus says it's better for that man that he was never born. He's speaking to his faith, faithlessness, and he's speaking to, when you say that about somebody, what are you talking about? his character, who he is. There's not one person in this room that would disagree with me if I said, it would have been better if Hitler was never born, right? That man's character murdered millions of people. Judas was in a place where he wasn't the good example of Mary. He was the bad example of unbelief. The manifestation of what Judas is going to do is that he does not believe Jesus is who he said he was. Because if he did, he would never have done it. And there's people that argue, well, what was his motivation? And there's 10 different arguments, and we can look at it from this way, we can look at it from that way, and maybe he was just trying to usher in Jesus' kingdom sooner. 
There is no repentance. If that was the case, then go say it. It's just this is what I believe. And what you believe is how you're going to live your life. Make no mistake. And you can come to church and you could put on the face and you can act like everything's fine. And then when you leave, you struggle with the same thing that you've been struggling with forever. And you've just got to act like and hold yourself together. God did not create you for that. God created you for something greater than that. And he, he allowed you to partake by faith in relationship with him so that you can experience better. I have our five points that we're going to go through. Five things that I want to, because face value again, it, does, it doesn't hit you as hard, but start thinking about, start thinking about if Jesus was who he said he was, right? The son of God, the son of man, divine, the Messiah, this is what he was communicating to them, okay? And now Judas, being involved in ministry with one of, as Jesus' closest disciple, he, this is all of the things that he experienced. Number one, Jesus in the storm. Judas was in the boat both times, wasn't he? Judas experienced Jesus stopping the wind and the waves, and he saw Jesus walking on the water. Let's read Matthew chapter 8, verse 25. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Guys, faith is always the point. It always gets boiled down to faith. Now, I understand you guys are upset. Well, let's finish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I didn't tell you guys, let's get in the boat and go to the other side, and we're all going to drown and die halfway there. Right? Can I get a chuckle? That was funny. Guys, we're going to get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side, but we're going to die in the middle of the sea. No, he didn't say that because what did he say? He said, we're going to the other side. And it's specifically in the text that he says, we're going to the other side. But sometimes for you and for I, in the middle of the storm, when things are shaking and the wind is blowing hard and the waves are getting bigger, we're like, God, I'm going to die. He said, I didn't say that to you, did I? I gave you a word. I gave you promises. I gave you direction. And that's what I want you to focus on. I'm sick and tired of, fo of people focusing right now on the things that may be when we have right now today the things that are, the things that are true, the things that are lovely, the things that are put in cement in God's word of what he's going to do and how he's going to work with mankind. And then we can take confidence in that and say, yeah, this is what, this is, this is my identity in Christ. This is what I know that I know. And God is going to deal with it with me accordingly to that, to his promises. They believed that it was possible for them to die in the middle of the lake. Jesus had told them that they not only were not going to die, but that they were going to live, which is the whole point. The whole point is living because Jesus is part of the equation, and he's the one bringing them through it. So number one, uh, they, uh, Judas experienced Jesus in the storm, the wind and the waves. He, 
I, I don't, I've never seen anybody walk on water before, but like, it's the middle of the night. We've been rowing all night, and we're making no headway because the headwind is pushing us to be in the same spot. Imagine how you'd feel, oh, 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 not making any progress. Got to meet Jesus on the other side by the morning. We're not going anywhere. You ever feel like that before? Spinning your wheels in the mud? Oh, man. And then Jesus just cruises up. And then Peter says, hey, can I come out to be with you? Yeah, come on out, Peter. And then Peter comes out, right? He's walking on the water. But wait, this is not what the story is about, right? Judas sees Peter and Jesus walking on the water. And I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I'm totally in with this group of guys for my own benefit. But uh, wow, maybe this is bigger than, than I think that it is. And then, and then Peter starts to sink. And why does Peter sink? Again, faith, doubt. In another gospel, the gospel of John, I, I um, made reference to the fact that Matthew didn't bring up Mary's name because he wanted us to focus on something else. But we do know that it was Mary. And, and in the gospel of John, the reaction from the disciples, the vocal person was none other than, who do you think? It was Judas. No, no. Why are you doing that expensive oil on Jesus' head? We could have fed poor people or done something, but then it goes on to say, but he said that because he was in charge of the money purse and he would help himself. And then you have this picture of a woman who gives everything and a man who's just about what he's going to get out of it. Taking and taking. Number two, this is a trip. Number two, legion and being sent out with power. So you know that as they cross the sea, they get over to the to the Gadarenes, and and there's this demon possessed guy, and the demons say that can can you cast us into a herd of swine? Matthew chapter eight verse twenty eight. When he had come to the other side to the country of the Gargesenes, there met with him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs extremely fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, what have you to do? What do we have to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? He says, no. They asked to be cast into the swine. They're cast into the swine. The swine run off the ledge into the, into the water. They drown. The people hear about it and they say, hey, could you guys leave? We don't want, we don't want that kind of thing around here, you know? Jesus showing his authority over things that are unseen. The first one was showing his authority over what was seen. And I like that. I like that, the, that God says, no, I, I'm not just the God of what's seen or the God of what, what you can't see. You, what, what, what kind of things can you see? You can see a mountain. And Jesus says, if you have faith, to cast that mountain into the sea, it's, it's no problem for God to do. So you see, like, the visual, what we see, and God's power over what is seen physically. And then what else do you see? You see the wind during the storm. You experience it. You see the waves, and then you see his authority over those things. And then you see his authority over the unseen. Like, for... We, don't, we didn't know what, what this year was going to look like when things started going south in a hurry. 
They were saying stuff. There's going to be millions of people by October. Now, I'm not making light of the fact that people have lost their lives, but it's, it doesn't, it's, it's not fitting with what was being told to us in the beginning. And what was used is this, this element of fear to stoke the fire of fear and not knowing what's going to happen when, when we as Christians responded differently because we serve and worship the God of the unseen. He's in control of the things that we can't see, we, we can't fully wrap our brains around or understand. He's the God of the seen, and he's the God of the unseen. And that's what Judas experienced. Judas experienced this. He experienced receiving the authority from Jesus to cast out devils. Let that sink in a little bit. He not only saw Jesus do it, but then there comes a time where Jesus says, you know what? You guys have all authority to go out. And they went out and they casted the demons out and they had authority. And they came back and they're like, you should have seen us. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. And he said, don't rejoice of the demons being subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice something that's already been done for you. You have reconciliation. You have relationship with your Father, the Almighty. Don't focus on those negative things, the unseen that you can't control, but I have absolute authority over. Do you think that Judas cast out a demon? I don't know. But I know that some of the people that were closest to him did. And he saw it. And he understood that it was a reality. It was possible, and it was a reality that they did have, and they were excited about. Jesus, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's not where we put our confidence in, that we have any kind of power or authority. Our confidence is in our relationship with God, what he has done for us. Number three, Judas experienced the synagogue's, the, the ruler's daughter who was raised from the dead, he also experienced Lazarus being raised from the dead. Dead is our arch enemy, right? It, it, there's sin in the world, and as a result of sin comes death. And nobody, like, feels good about death, right? I mean, that would be kind of weird. There's a, there's a name for you kind of people that like death. It's our enemy, and then Jesus' authority is not just over things that are seen, things that are unseen, but even our arch enemy itself, death, has no power, has no strength. And Judas experienced that. He saw people who were dead that were raised to life. Matthew chapter 9, 18 while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. So this ruler is exercising what? What he believes? What does he believe? He's exercising faith that Jesus can raise his daughter from the dead. And he says, I know you can do it. We Come with me. And then right after this, there's a, there's a little segue with a woman with a flow of blood who says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then I'll be healed. And she touches it. She's healed. And Jesus says, who touched me? Are you crazy, Jesus? Everybody's touching you, man. No, no, somebody touched me intentionally. And he stops and pauses. No, Jesus, my daughter is dead. You better hurry because if you wait too long, you're not going to be able to raise her. 
Nobody says anything to him. He addresses the woman's need. He commends her for her faith. And then he moves on to go raise the ruler's daughter from the dead. Number four, feeding of tens of thousands. And I said tens of thousands because there's two accounts. There's an account where there's 5,000 and there's an account where there's 4,000. Those are just uh, men. Those are not including women and children. So most conservative estimates are total around twenty to 30,000 people. Try to, you are one of Jesus's closest people. You're part of his inner circle and you're tired. You've been rowing all night against the wind. You get to this demon-possessed guy, and the pigs happen and stuff, and then right afterwards, these people, they come around the lake, and they follow you, and they get back, and, and, and Jesus, what does it say? He says that he had compassion on them, and they say, send the people away. Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. He had compassion on the people. You give them something to eat, and then you witness a few loaves of bread and a, and a couple of fish. You know, T-Mobile Arena seats like 18,000 people. Have you guys ever been to a Golden Knights game? By the way, Knights won last night. They're going to win again tonight. We're on a roll. Go Knights, go. When you're sitting in that arena and you're looking around, think about this. You're looking at 18,000 different faces. That's what I see. There's nothing for Jesus to be like. Hey, you guys organize this. Whippity whip, you over there, you over there. And then just like, what's that, that movie with the really fast? He stirs his coffee with his finger. No, come on. It's like the one with uh, Tim, the, the, Tim, the tool guy. Huh? Zoom! Thank you. Jesus is like, with the bread and the fishes. He's like, go take him out. That would be nothing. And you, okay, that can be, come off a little strong. You are one of the people that are in charge of organizing and making sure everything flows well. You see it. And then you go out afterwards and you gather the baskets of, of scraps. Matthew chapter 14, So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men besides women and children. Number five, probably my favorite. Number five is Jesus' superior intellect. Jesus was smarter than everybody else. Always. He always had an answer. It was always the right answer. And then we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 22, uh, and they don't ask him any more questions after this. It, it says in Matthew chapter 22, 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. You just hung out with the smartest guy on planet Earth for the last three years, and you saw him dismantle any argument that anybody had that came against you. You experienced it. You talked to him. You saw him talk to others and, and instruct others. He, he clearly knew what he was talking about. And it says over and over and over again, they were in awe. They were in wonder. Where did this guy come from? Now, the reason that I paint this picture for you, and this is the difficult part for me, okay, guys? The reason that I paint this picture for you 
is because Judas was so involved. Judas wasn't a Sunday Christian. Judas wasn't a Sunday and Wednesday night Christian, Wednesday and home group. Jesus, uh, Judas was, was a servant. Now, he, he was taking advantage. He was involved in the nuts and bolts of Jesus' ministry. But while he went through the motions year after year, he never genuinely came to true faith in who Jesus said he was. And, and again, like, I'm not trying to freak anybody out or scare anybody, but, but I've seen people who have claimed to be Christians for years, their whole lives, and, and go to church and serve and all these things. And for some reason, because they really didn't under, they didn't really believe Jesus was who he said he was. Paul puts it this way, they shipwrecked their faith. Because what you believe eventually will be manifested through your life. You can act like it won't be, but let me tell you, it will be. And you can keep playing this charade. You can keep going through the motions. You can keep using the right words. You can use the Christianese and all that stuff. But listen, this is the, this is the point. The issue is, where is your heart truly? Is it in genuine faith? Because the word says that don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you find yourself in because it's for the proving of the genuineness of your faith. It's the test that you take after you've completed a high school class or a college course. F. Your answers indicate that you did not participate this semester at school. And what you think, what you say you believe, is going to be proven. It's going to be proven. And I've seen people go through unbelievable hardship that I cannot even express to you this morning. Very difficult, very difficult seasons of life. And one of two things happens in every single one of those cases. They are either emboldened and strengthened in their faith, or they're destroyed. And it's proven. It's proven. That's what you really believe. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Notice with me, if you will, that each one of the disciples there that night asked this same question. Is it I? This is healthy to be introspective and to see what we really believe. Because if they all really believed Jesus was who he said he was, then none of them would have gone out to betray him. And we ask ourselves, what do I really believe? Is this what my life looks like? But you know, I'd be the guy at the table. I'm so confident in what I believe. I'd be like, I bet it's Judas. I never had a good feeling about that guy. I'm just kidding. Surely it's not me, Jesus. We're going to get to that next week. Sorry, spoiler alert, Peter. Surely not me. Oh, well, well. 
Actually, Peter, Jesus says, you said it. You confessed. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many of the, uh, for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you in my father's house. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. He says, take this cup, take this bread. This is something that we do a couple times a month here at Paradise. And we, we remember his death, what he paid for us, for the remission of sins, so that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, which is the new covenant that is shed for people's sins, and then the body the bread, which is his body, which is broken for also for our case. You know, the, the gospel, I've, I've heard this said before, and, and it's, it's absolutely 100% true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, is as simple as it looks on paper. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, and you shall be saved. It's simple. When people start to complicate the gospel and adding things to it, then it becomes cultic. And it's people trying to control each other. I just watched this little mini documentary on Scientology, and this lady came out, and she's like, the thing that they do in, in, with Scientology is, is you go in, and then there's these different levels. And then once you progress a certain amount, they'll bump you up to the next level. But you never know what's ahead. They never reveal it to you. So there's that, just that secrecy, and, and you never you know what you're going to experience next or where you're going to go because they say, you, can, you can't know that yet. You're not ready for that. It's all about control and manipulation. If for some reason you guys don't see me next week, I'm gone, you know why, because I just exposed Scientology. But it's not just Scientology. This is, this is, the, this is the, the cults and sects. This is how they control people. This is how they manipulate people. The gospel is simple. And the gospel isn't about programs or cultures or or, or social justice issues, or any of those things. The gospel is, is simple on an individual, uh, individual basis, and then we have the corporate agreement, and look at all the fruit that comes from that. I can't even begin to tell you. The fruit in people's lives individually, the fruit and things they have to offer each other, the love, the compassion, the help. I want to go over these five points with you and, and emphasize the application as we close up for today's message. Once again, number one, Jesus in the storm, God is over creation, things that are seen. He's over all those things. He's over your broke down car. He's over the, the mountain. He's over the, the wind. He's over the waves. He has authority. He's over it. You're experiencing that. Take note of and be blessed by his provision and care for you. Number two, God is uh, the God over evil, things that are unseen. He's the God over the things that you see and you have to experience on a physical level. He's also the God of the unseen. 
the things that you think that you can't control or you don't know where they're at or who's infected or what's happening or what's going on. He's the God over that. And when you place confidence in him, that confidence is connected to faith. Your life is going to look differently than people whose lives are driven by fear. Number three, the ruler's daughter raised from the dead. God is over death. Our lives will look differently when we take to heart and we truly believe that our last breath on earth is our first breath in heaven. And and how satisfying it is. When we get through this list, maybe some of you guys will be like, yeah, I I get one and three, or I get five and two and three, but that one's tough. I want to tell you this morning that God wants to bring you through those other points so that you can live in safety, security, and confidence through faith in the good things that he has for you. Number four, feeding of the tens of thousands. God is the God over our needs, not necessarily our wants, but God is the God over our needs. And not only does he address the need, that's, shouldn't that be enough? Like the fact that God addresses our needs is awesome. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for addressing my needs. It's not just the need being addressed. He has compassion on you while he's providing for your needs. He looked at the crowd and he had compassion on them. I want to take care of these people. He's going to die for them. Number five. Jesus is superior intellect. God is smart. This isn't a blind faith. You know, people say, you just got to take the leap of faith, man. No, this is not blind faith. This is very reasonable. And God wants us to reason. He keeps it simple. The gospel is simple. So that we can engage him, so that we can have relationship with him. He makes it as easy as possible. He says, come, let us reason together. Who, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world, he says to Job. How about the little mountain goat when she's up on top of the mountain having the baby? Who do you think assists her? I do. That's what God said. God knows everything. He's superior. His superior intellect trumps anything that I think that I know or understand. His, his ways are higher than my ways. They're above my finding out in his goodness. Now, I don't want you guys to be frustrated or upset, but I do want you to look at these things as something that Judas did experience, but God also wants you to experience as well. And then at the end of the day, what does that produce in your life? Does it produce a security, a a solidarity, a a founding, a a grounding, a concreting in your faith, a strengthening of your faith? Or is it a challenge? You might say, how could God allow Judas to live with Jesus for that long? Because it had to happen, because it exemplifies the character of God, that even his arch enemies, he, he made every provision for them. He gave every opportunity, never said a word. You know what I would have done? I'd have been like, boom, Judas, you're out of here. I know your heart, you sick 
twisted, wicked, dirty pieces of silver. I'm way worth more way than that. I'm worth more, way more than that. Kind of lost the effect, huh? But he didn't. Jesus' example is, love your enemies. He didn't just say it. He did it. And it's the submission of Jesus to the Father in obedience that was the example for us. Puffing our chests up, acting like we deserve something. We don't deserve anything. God's goodness to us is free. God's goodness to us is simple. His desire for us is through grace to receive peace and hope and love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today, and, and we ask that you would help it all come together in our, in our minds, that it would confirm what you're trying to communicate to us, that we would have ears to hear, that you'd be blessed by our response, that you'd be glorified by our application of your word to our lives, Father, in Jesus' name. I want to give everybody an opportunity as the worship music is playing and everybody's heads are bowed and eyes are closed like an attitude of prayer. That if you have never publicly made that profession of faith before, you've never said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity this morning to receive the simple gospel so that you can have true reconciliation to God and receive the gift of His Holy Spirit and you can start to walk in and enjoy abundant life and eternal life. If that applies to anybody here this morning and, and, and you want me to pray with you this morning, please raise your hand up high in the air so that we can pray together if you've never done that before. Anybody at all? I want to give you another opportunity for the rest of you who have been walking maybe in more fear than faith over the last few months. That you say you believe something, but your life looks differently in certain situations. I want to give you an opportunity to be honest about that. And you also raise your hand up so that we can pray together. If anybody's in a position where they want to be walking in boldness of faith and not fear, raise your hand up high for me so I can pray for you. Anybody else? Father, I, I lift up these, my brothers and sisters, who in honesty come before you and say, God, we, we need you and we want to follow you with all of our hearts, operating in, functioning in faith. And, and even if it's, Lord, we want to believe, but we're just struggling, bring them to a place where fear has no rule or reign in their lives, and you reveal yourself to them, and they would be able to walk in confidence in your promises and receive the abundance of goodness that you have in store for them. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.